Hey, uh, speaking of Father's Day, I want to make a plug. Uh, we have a, a men's group on biblical manhood called Stepping Up, and we're meeting about twice a month, and we're going to resume here this next Saturday at 7. Uh, even if you haven't been to it before, uh, it's the kind of thing where you can be benefited and edified by attending. Uh, speaking of manhood, I need to disclose that I've received some criticism for my teaching and the source of the, of the criticism uh, is especially burdensome. Uh, my wife has said, why don't you have pictures like Mike? Do I need to do something here? <laughs> okay. Okay, here comes Reagan. Um, so, uh, you know... I said, well, you know, that's, that's just not me, or, you know, time. You know, I even said something like, you know, uh, you know I'm just a, you know, just the facts, ma'am type teacher, you know. But none of that worked, you know. None of it worked at all. Thank you, Reagan. Uh, so um, I've got a picture today for you, okay? This is a start. I asked Mike to help me. Uh, yesterday, and he helped me figure out how to put it on the slide. That's what these things are, aren't they? And uh, I have an artist's rendition of what it's like to be a father in the Vincent Gaggle. <laughs> now, if you uh, ignore the do's and some of the hair color, you might actually recognize some of the people in the picture there. All right? Uh, and I won't tell you who the artist is, but he happens to be sitting on the front row next to Christy. Okay. Um, we, uh, Father's Day is actually a perfect time to address our topic today. You see, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in a mini-series, we're wrapping up today a mini-series on how to pray. Not as Kent says, but as, as Jesus instructs. Uh, and so, to review all that, the first thing that we understand is that ours is a personal, a powerful, and a loving Father. You see, it all fits the theme, okay? Uh, and our prayers, once we understand that, our prayers will be affected in at least two ways. First, we understand, if we go by what Jesus says, that His concerns will get priority. His glory, hallowed be thy name, His reign, thy kingdom come, and His will on earth as it is in heaven. And secondly, today, uh, we will see that our needs will be committed to Him. Give to us, forgive us, deliver us. So let's take a look at the passage. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Formal end. However, we add the next two verses because they tie in. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will for also forgive you. However, if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, even though our needs are subordinate to His praise, to decline 
to mention our needs just because we don't want to bother the big guy with our trivial things is as great an error as to allow our needs to dominate our prayers, which is where I am. And maybe you may hang out as well. Uh, You see, God loves us with a Father's love. He's concerned about our total welfare, and He desires that we trust Him to the point that we bring our needs to His throne. So let's get to this first one here. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, Uh, the word daily appears only in this passage in the New Testament. And it means of the day that is coming, literally. The prayer expresses dependence on the Father for what is sufficient only for the coming day. Not yearly, not monthly, or even weekly bread. Now, it's appropriate and responsible to prepare for the future, including the time when we cannot work. But our prayer and our attitude is to reflect our daily dependence upon God, not upon our investments in our worldly treasures. But what is bread? Okay, seems fairly straightforward, but the early church fathers really struggled with this. They just couldn't believe that Jesus intended our very first request for ourselves to be for bread. So that was just too mundane, you know, not spiritual enough. So they interpreted the word bread to include some more spiritual things, which we really don't need to go into today. And you've got to admit, starting with bread does seem a little strange. You know, we've been dealing with prayer in terms like our Father and hallowed name and your kingdom and your will. And it seems like he'd do the same with us. You know, he'd start with our spiritual needs and go on to the needs of our soul and end with those of the body. But he starts with the body. Well, why? Well, the body is kind of important to a continued existence. All right? And if my physical existence is provided for, I'm then in a position to begin to learn what it means to live true life, to walk in fellowship and communion with my Father, that I might have life and have it more abundantly. As soon as I realize all that, then I know that there are things that can interfere with that fellowship, that I am a sinner and I need forgiveness in order to enjoy life with God. Thankfully, the Reformers came along and took a more literal view. Uh, Martin Luther saw bread as a symbol for everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, home, wife, children, good government, and peace. In other words, the necessities or the things we really think we want that that are needed for a good life, but not the luxuries of life. And so we've got a principle here that we need to look at. Our Father is the ultimate source of every good gift. Food, clothing, work, leisure, strength, intelligence, friendship, everything. But He doesn't owe us a dime. Paul chastised the believers in 1 Corinthians 4 when he said, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if it was a gift? You know, but the lust for power and control through manipulation by rulers throughout the ages, combined with the sin of laziness by the subjects, has resulted not only in independence, but an attitude of entitlement. 
Today, some rulers don't mind this attitude at all. In fact, they encourage it because it keeps the subjects under their control. In other words, people will vote for and vote back into office those that give them free stuff. Uh, And we all know it's not free. Somebody has to pay for it. Uh, But this attitude can also infect believers and give them an expectation of government and a lack of dependence and thankfulness to God. So our ingratitude is an insult to our Father. We take His gifts for granted, and when when they fall short of our expectations, we doubt His faithfulness, or maybe even His existence. The prayer that God give to us does not relieve us of the need to work for a living, to sow and reap, so that we can feed ourselves and the hungry. That's why Paul said uh, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, uh, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. You know, it occurred to me that the Haitians understand this, this verse very, very well. And for those of you who have been there, you go down the street, narrow streets, and there's people all along both sides, okay? And because they understand if they don't fix somebody's tire or sell somebody a cold Robusto, They or their family may not eat. But it's our wealth that contributes to our thanklessness. You know, hardly anybody in the United States understands, really knows poverty compared to them. But if we were to experience that kind of poverty, we would better appreciate and find refuge in the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Because this is really a recognition of our ultimate dependence upon Him. And He normally works through human means in order to provide us a purpose in life, a life work. Now, isn't it wonderful that the God who created and now sustains the whole universe considers our smallest of daily needs? He knows the hairs on our head. He knows when a swallow falls. What a contrast to go from thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven to give us this day our daily bread. Now this is the miracle of redemption that Jesus Christ takes puny things like you and me and links us to the almighty God of the universe. But let me ask, does anybody here see an apparent contradiction in the passages that we've studied? You know, immediately before he started the Lord's Prayer, Jesus commands uh, the, the disciples to avoid the vain repetition of the heathens. And then he says, For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. So, if He already knows, why ask? Why? Well, the fact that God does not need us to remind him of our needs, highlights the heart of the meaning of this prayer. You see, just like an earthly father, our heavenly father desires for us to seek him because of the relationship, the dependence, the connection that it engenders. Let me ask you a question, okay? 
does God give us all the grace that you and I will ever need? Okay, now let me finish the question. All at once. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That, if God were to, uh, if His love were expressed to us like one big lump of grace all at once, it would be a bit like a father handing a child a bucket full of money and saying, there you go, that's all you'll ever need, go out and have fun. Do you think that maybe we might say thank you very much? Turn around and do that and never look back? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Instead, a father wants his child to come and seek his favor and express his needs, kids, not wants, but his needs over and over again. Why? Because he wants a relationship. It gives the father pleasure when we ask for daily bread. Oswald Chambers said it this way, I tell him what I know he knows so that I may get to know it as he does. Prayer becomes the chatter of a child to his father. Now, in wrapping up this particular passage, or this phrase, I want to mention, it, it, well, it's not mentioned in here, but it seems to me that in prayer, this would be the point where we would also want to be expressing our thanks to our Father. Let's move on here to the next one. Uh, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then we skip to verse 14 because it relates. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Yeah, this passage has caused some problems for some people. Okay, it's hard to understand. Uh, first, there's... Uh, the view that there's no need for Christians to ask for forgiveness. Some in this camp point out that we are justified by faith, that God has already dealt with, washed away our sins in full, past, present, present, and future. And this group asks, if God has imputed to us the righteousness of Christ and all our sins have been covered by the blood, why should I ask for forgiveness? And to be honest... I remember years ago expressing this view. Another group comes to the same conclusion using a little different logic, that is, their view of sanctification or holiness. In other words, it would be wrong for them to ask forgiveness because they're holy. They do not sin anymore. They're perfect. They do no wrong. As a little aside, I can't judge their hearts, certainly, but... I kind of get the impression that both of our presidential candidates may be in this camp. Uh, don't know. A third group includes folks who believe that Christians who pray for forgiveness have gone back to the law. They point out that there's no mention of Christ's atonement for the basis of forgiveness uh, in the prayer. So they interpret the past to say, forgive me because I forgave others. It becomes an exchange between you and God, a quid pro quo. So they rationalize that this command must mean something, so it applies to those to whom it was spoken, the disciples, and then it applies to some future kingdom age. Now, I'm not speaking for all the elders here, but 
My view is that the Sermon on the Mount applies to all believers on earth in all times. But this misunderstanding, I think, of this passage is reinforced by some of the versions of the Bible because they all have to come up with different ways of saying the same thing. And particularly the NIV says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this would infer a causal connection between the acts of forgiveness. I think you can say all these groups are not ignorant, but they know just enough to be dangerous. They seem to forget the little fact that Jesus tells us to pray for forgiveness. Justification comes when a sinner wakes up to the fact that he needs forgiveness of sins in order to be saved. He receives the free gift of salvation and realizes his justification in Christ. Having been justified at salvation, we all continue to walk in the world and we're all going to get a little dirty with sin. Yeah, our sins are forgiven. But if you look at 1 John 1, it makes clear that Christians, a Christian living in faith may still fall into sin. You know, John was writing to believers when he said in verse 9, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's only the man or woman who has Christ as Savior who can call out to the Heavenly Father. It's only his child who can pray, forgive my debts as I forgive my debtors. But when we know, when we do that, we know we are forgiven. As for the sanctification rationale, we need to look no further than the previous verse in 1 John 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, I don't know what your experience is, but the greater the saint, the greater the awareness of sin within. The problem with the back to the law view is that Jesus did not say, forgive me because, or on the ground of the fact that I forgave others. Rather, he says, even as I forgive those who are my debtors. However, the more difficult part of this are the next two verses uh, where it says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, we need to step back a little bit. And let's address the elephant in the room. Okay. Does everybody here believe once saved, always saved? Now, some churches don't. I, I think at Lion and Lamb we do. Okay, uh, we believe that it's salvation, the blood of Christ is payment for past, present, and future sin, and therefore we are all forgiven. At the same time, do, believe, do we believe these same words that Jesus spoke? Okay, let's back, step back a little further. Let me caution here, I'm not trying to create any doubt about anybody's salvation here, but I think this is something we need to talk about. Can a person know that he or she is saved? Absolutely. John explicitly tells us that these things have I written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life in 1 John 5. 
You know, we all desire to, particularly with our loved ones, to see them come to salvation. We can say to someone, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if that person says to us, yes, I do, I agree, it's reasonable for us to rejoice with them in their salvation. However, what you and I cannot do is know in our heart what that person believes in their heart. Two different things. That's really something between God and that person. So the intent of this passage here is explained in the parable in Matthew 18, where the servant begs and receives forgiveness for a huge debt to his master, but then turns around and refuses to forgive his fellow servant of a teeny tiny debt. And then when the master finds out, the parable ends with, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he paid all his debt. And here's the kicker. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, it may seem subtle, but the point of the parable is not that there's a causal sequence in which Joe must forgive Anne so that in response God will forgive Joe. Rather, it's an attitude. It's the response of forgiveness out of a heart that desires to honor Him. Uh, the point here is that there's no forgiveness for one who does not forgive. God forgives truly repentant people. And one of the chief evidences of true repentance is a forgiving spirit. The earthly master came to see that his servant was actually a wicked servant. How did he do that? Well, the proof that we're forgiven is our forgiveness of others. An unforgiving spirit bears strong witness that a person has never repented of their own sin. The fact is that a person who holds a grudge and refuses to forgive may think he is forgiven, but these passages tell us he's wrong. So the hard saying here is that such an unforgiving person who claims to be a Christian is explicitly telling others by his bitterness and his unforgiveness that he is in fact a wicked servant, not a child of God. He's not saved. Now again, we don't know for sure, but he does. So my suggestion is, if you bear any bitterness, any grudge against anybody, deal with it, deal with it quickly. The principle we get here is that the Christian who knows she is forgiven has no choice but to forgive others. She doesn't even want to withhold it. The essence of the Christian life is self-denial, taking up her cross, following Jesus, losing her life so that she might find it. You know, further, when you look at the parable of the prodigal son, it doesn't mention Christ's atonement, but it gives us a beautiful picture of God as Father. 
A wayward son takes his inheritance as well as his respect for his father and leaves. But then after learning his lesson, he returns in repentance and his father freely forgives and lovingly receives him back. Just as that parable points out that great truth, so here Jesus reminds us of the need for forgiveness and assures us of the fact of that forgiveness for ourselves. Forgiveness before Christ, after Christ, and always comes only through Christ and his crucifixion. It was ordained before the foundation of the world and is implicit in all similar statements in the Bible. This is what we mean by interpreting Scripture with Scripture, the whole counsel of God. Because some of these passages are hard to understand. Here, Jesus was simply conveying the relationship of a father and a child. True repentance from the father breaks every child. He cannot resist forgiveness of others. And this prayer is really not genuine unless we forgive in our hearts. Therefore, we need to be honest with ourselves and never repeat this petition without that forgiveness first. And I think, like in the, in the previous section, this is also the logical point, even though it doesn't mention it, when we confess anything that would hinder our relationship with our Father. Again, the fact that He already knows our sins does not eliminate our need to come clean with Him in our open relationship. God loves a broken and contrite heart. Let's move on. Uh, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, some consider this to be two separate petitions, but we're going to treat it as a negative and positive of one. Okay? To pray for God to keep us from temptation certainly makes sense. But to ask God to not lead us into temptation seems a little odd, doesn't it? Of course, we know by interpreting Scripture with Scripture that uh, no one should say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay? How do we reconcile? Okay? One explanation of this interpretational issue here, which I think holds some water, is that Jesus, at least in our English translation, is using a figure of speech in which he negates the contrary. Let me try to explain here. Uh, For example, if I was to say, at the Billy Graham Crusades, there were not a few decisions for Christ. You all would know what I meant. We negate not the contrary, a few. Okay? So, this passage could be interpreted to say, lead us, comma, not into temptation, but rather away from it into righteousness will, we, will be protected and therefore kept righteous. And then the next phrase could logically be, with the result that we will be delivered from evil. Okay? This petition also reminds us that just as we depend upon God for our physical existence, we are dependent on Him for our moral and our spiritual victory. As we grow in our walk of faith, our moral weakness becomes more in focus. We see that whatever virtue we have is only the result of God working in us, the fruit of the Spirit. Another interpretational thing here, position is also important. 
You know, if you look at this passage that we're studying now, it, 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 to be kept from temptation comes right after the petition about confession and forgiveness and right before the further explanation of forgiveness in verses 15 and 14 and 15. And we want to remember that this whole section in Matthew 6 is dealing with our religious hypocrisy. That's the issue here in, in the context. And so this, in, in the context here, may very well indicate that Jesus is here referring to the temptation that we have to be bitter, to not forgive. All below the veneer of Sunday morning holiness. Another point here is that in this petition, we are not dictating to God what He shall or shall not do. Reality is that God does allow His children to be tested and perhaps tempted in order to develop patience. And what we experience in our life is His call, not ours. And while God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to resist, it is still appropriate to pray that we are not led into situations where we are likely to be tempted and possibly fall. In fact, Jesus told his disciples to pray that you enter not into temptation. Now the second aspect of, of this petition, to be delivered from evil, this would include not just uh, the evil of Satan, but the evil of the world and the evil of our own hearts. The reason that we ask to be kept from evil is so that our fellowship with God is never broken. Holiness by itself is not a worthy goal. Rather, our ultimate goal in life should be to have a right relationship with God, to know Him, to have unfettered relationship and fellowship and communion with Him. We're to pray that nothing comes between us, nothing separates us from the love of the Father in heaven. So in summary, on this passage on how to pray, first thing we need to notice is that Jesus told us to pray. Now this is not a study on the benefits of prayer, but it should be clear that prayer is not just a polite thing that we do before meals or putting little ones to bed. It's a part of the Christian walk. But it's so much more. It's our time of deep fellowship, communion, conversation, speaking and listening to our Father. And finally, it's commanded of every true believer. Jesus specifically taught His disciples that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. We just can't overemphasize how important it is to pray early and often. And Jesus said, you do not receive because you do not ask. I highly recommend that you make prayer not a routine, but a part of your daily life uh, out of a desire to spend time with your Father individually, as married couples, as a family, and as a church body. Secondly, Jesus taught us to pray this way. When we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, that's what He said. His disciples said, teach us to pray. He said, pray this way. He did not say, pray this prayer. Okay? This prayer is clearly the best known example of prayer 
to the world, as evidenced by movies and spontaneous crowd prayers at football games and graduations and all that. You know, switching gears here a little bit, I sometimes joke in comparison to what we call high church, you know, with the big cathedrals and the liturgy and the readings and the responses and all that. I sometimes joke that, you know, Lion and Lamb is really a low church because we tend not to do those things. Uh, you know, we tend not to want to have a lot of formality that's meaningless to the people who are doing it. However, that doesn't mean that those things are wrong or not helpful. And so today, I'd like to do that. Okay? I'm going to introduce the prayer as Jesus did, and then I'd like us all to say the Lord's Prayer in the King James, because that's the one I think we're most likely all to know. Okay? And here's the introduction. After this manner, therefore, pray ye together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us for evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That didn't hurt. That's a good thing. Not, not a thing wrong with that at all. And many of us have done that uh, in, in other churches at other times. But you've got to be careful because this is not always a prayer from the heart. For some people, they're just praying it because they're told to pray. Okay? Jesus gave us the Lord prayer not so much to pray as an example of how we pray and how we put our needs and our requests and our praises on that skeleton. However, if you find yourself in a church like I did growing up, where you said this just about every Sunday, you may have the unintended but negative consequence of distracting and inoculating you from the true meaning and instruction of Jesus. And if anybody thinks that they have fulfilled an obligation by saying the Lord's Prayer, they have missed Jesus' intent by a mile. Again, we are said to pray in this way. So I've got a question for us. Do we? Do we really pray as Jesus instructed us? Before I started this series, I can honestly say I did not. I always get more out of this than I can possibly give to you. But I suggest to you that we more often use the Lord's Prayer as we should not. Recital in place of true prayer. And we do not use it as we should. To teach us to pray as He instructs. You know, the problem that Jesus was addressing with the scribes and Pharisees was their obsession with their own image. How they looked to others. True believers should be obsessed instead with His name, His kingdom, His will, 
His glory. Now, the Lord's Prayer can be recited hypocritically or maybe just mechanically, but if you use it as it's intended by Jesus, it provides an alternative to both forms of false prayer. It's not wrong to pray short little prayers that don't follow this exactly. It's not wrong to say flare prayers or anything like that, simply to give thanks for things or whatever. Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. And I, I got I to gotta tell you, I don't know that it's really important to follow the specific order in the Lord's Prayer. I do think it's important that we first, when we start our times of intimate prayer, where we really want to connect with God, that we start with glorifying Him rather than seeking our own. We get to that, but that comes after our praise and our honor to Him. Um, you know, I'm not sure whether this is a good idea or not, but we provided in your bulletin a little bookmark. Okay? I hope you'll take that. This is not meant for you to go home and look at it and pray down here. But if you're like me, and if you try to do this, what I found myself doing is, as I was praying, I was trying to remember the Lord's Prayer so I could figure out what to do and all that. And maybe if you've got a little outline like this that's easily accessible, maybe you'll get it after looking at this for a while and it will become second nature to you. That's our hope anyway. So if we go down this, let's just review this whole, I think it's four Sunday series on how to pray specifically. The first thing that we do is we exclude all distractions. That might be the cell phone. It might be what's going on up here. We get rid of it all. Then we pause, we think, I am about to talk to my Heavenly Father. And we pray to hallow His name, His glory, praise and adoration, His reign in the hearts of all people, His will on earth as it is in heaven. And then finally, we get to us our daily breads, our needs, thanks, prayer for others, confession of our own sins, and forgiveness of others, and deliverance from temptation and evil. Um, I'm going to paraphrase an unlikely source. We'll see who remembers here. Uh, when you pray, you don't always get what you want. You know, you don't always get what you want. But if you pray as Jesus instructed, sometimes you just might find you get what you need. Everybody who's rolling their eyes is an old rocker. Okay? But I think there's some truth in that. That if we pray as Jesus tells us to pray, I believe that honors Him. I believe that He will bless that. Father in heaven, You are a great and an awesome God. And we give all glory to You now. We desire that You be lifted up and that you, your, your kingdom reign in the, in the hearts of people all over. Lord, we pray that somehow Your will will be done for us here. Father, we have many, many needs. 
We pray that you would provide for us what we need for the coming day. Lord, and keep us in constant communication with you. Lord, Lord, help us to remember that. Lord, we, we lift up our prayers for others. We know that we need to confess. We need to come clean with you. We need to have an open relationship with you, even though you already know what we've done. Lord, keep us from those things that will drag us down, that will interfere. Father, we give praise and glory to you and ask that you would work in our hearts and make this a part of our natural walk with you. We give you the praise and the glory today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.